This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. In March 2020, Stephen Thrasher looked at maps of COVID-19 deaths throughout New York City. There was something oddly familiar about the patterns. They looked a lot like maps that tracked where people lived who were diagnosed with HIV, people who had been incarcerated, and people harassed or killed by police. In his book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, Thrasher shows the inequalities in who is able to survive viruses and how systems of oppression keep people sick. Stephen Thrasher joins us now. He's also the Daniel H. Renberg Chair of Social Justice and Reporting and an Assistant Professor of Journalism at Northwestern University. Welcome back to Reset, Professor Thrasher. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. Well, let's start with the viral underclass. Uh, Tell us what that is. The bioline class is a way to think about and identify the kinds of people who are repeatedly uh, affected by viruses again and again and again. Um, sometimes you know, it's happening under different circumstances. Sometimes the viruses themselves are extremely different viruses with, with wildly different properties. Um, but we see the same kinds of people being harmed again and again and again. We've seen it with HIV AIDS, with COVID-19. We're seeing it again now with monkeypox most recently. Um, and so it's a way to understand and see the way that viruses can can help us understand the kinds of people who are marginal in society. Um, and it's also a way, particularly in even though the, the dynamic exists around the globe, but particularly in the United States, the viral underclass helps us understand the ways that becoming infected and becoming sick uh, makes people economically precarious. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not the situation even for the problems that happen, say, with the National Health Service in the UK, and you might have a viral underclass that is also getting sick from things. But once people are seeking care, they're not thrown off an economic cliff uh, when they go through the NHS. Whereas in the United States, if you become sick with a virus, you are really, really um, uh, harmed in many ways. We're seeing right now people who become infected with monkeypox are having to quarantine for a month without any support from the government. And a month of having no income for most Americans means that they're going to be uh, financially ruined in the short term with effects that could last for the rest of their lives economically. Yeah, that's huge. Well, the the first chapter of the book opens with George Floyd's murder. And you note that he died with COVID antibodies in his system. Um, what's, What's significant about that? What's the connection there? I thought it was interesting when I read about it, and it seemed to come in and out of the news very quickly, that uh, this, this autopsy showed that Floyd um, had the, was living with the novel coronavirus or had it recently. Um, and I thought that that was a, a kind of micro way to understand a broader issue, broader problem that we have in our society, that you have this person, he's killed by police. If you look at the budget of the city of Minneapolis, more than a third of it goes to police. Here in Chicago, uh, about 40% of our budget goes yeah. to police. And so these budgets are priorities of, of what our government is doing and how our society values certain things. So a huge amount of money is going to police. That makes it much more likely that someone like George Floyd is going to end up in an interaction with them. And also George Floyd had lost his job, as about 40 million people did in those first mm-hmm. months of the pandemic. And so when I learned that he'd both been killed by police, but he'd had COVID, I'd also wondered, you know, had, if he'd survived the police, would he have maybe died of COVID because black men are very disproportionately affected by COVID-19, uh, particularly in terms of uh, mortality once acquiring the virus. But even a little broader, I thought, what if Minneapolis had spent its money differently? You know, what if they had spent their 
municipal budget to make sure people like George Floyd had economic help when they couldn't work, when they'd lost their job in this pandemic? What if they'd spent their money on affordable housing? Minneapolis has one of the, the most uh, terribly overpriced housing um, districts in the country. Um, you know, maybe if they had spent their money on those things, uh, George Floyd never would have ended up in that deli or end, ended up in the path of the police and might be alive. Mm-hmm. And so sort of broadening out and thinking about, you know, here in Chicago, I think about what if the city of Chicago didn't spend so much money on police and was spending on money on the kinds of things that would keep people from getting sick in the first place. And we've seen uh, President Biden had promised at one point that he was going to hire 100,000 healthcare workers that were going to be hired in the mm-hmm. pandemic, but would do a variety of things. And that never happened. Um, but if he had hired them, you know, we could have taken the system that delivered two, three, four million vaccines a day to people largely through spit and tape and a lot of volunteer mm-hmm. hours. You know, we could have made sort of a semi-permanent system out of that with these healthcare workers and made it so that when people needed a booster, they just show up at the place that they need to get it every three or four, six months, depending on uh, the nature of the vaccine. Yeah. We also could have gotten vaccines to people with monkeypox. There's a meningitis outbreak in Florida, could have dealt with things like that, flu shots. Um, and instead, President Biden, until he was felled by COVID himself, it was trying to go off in the last couple of weeks and stump for $37 billion for not 100,000 healthcare workers, but 100,000 yeah. police. Yeah. So looking at Floyd's murder and how it happened, I think, is a micro way to understand that we're overspending on things that don't, that things that actually create viral illness and underspending on the things that prevent, yeah. that prevent it. Well, you wrote this book during the pandemic um, and uh, before we knew much about monkeypox. Um, and, and what we know about COVID has changed a lot since March 2020. How different is is it from the book you set out to write? I hope that, <laughs> yeah, I hope that it's kind of the book I set out to write. The way that it, it came to be was I've been researching the criminalization of HIV and AIDS for years, um, particularly sending on a case of a young man named Michael Johnson, who was uh, prosecuted and convicted of transmitting HIV and then sentenced to 30 years in prison. And through that case, I I started to see the first overlap of these maps, where there was HIV uh, and where there were AIDS. I was seeing lots of police violence and and over-policing. And so out of that, I, I... kind of started to see the ways a, a certain kind of systemic racism manifested itself. Um, and I finished my dissertation. I was just starting as a professor at Medill, trying to figure out that fall of 2019, winter of 2020, how I was going to turn that into a book when the uh, COVID pandemic mm-hmm. broke out. Um, and so kind of what I wanted to do, and I hope I've succeeded, is to use this idea of a viral underclass as an analytic to look at the way that this the last pandemic we were going through was unfolding. And I didn't know, you know, I hoped that it would give me a way to, but I did not know exactly how the story would unfold when I when I sold the book and really conceived of the frame of it of how it is. It was in the February, March, April, May of 2020, and we didn't know how things were going to go. Um, and so some of the chapters, of course, were extremely difficult and painful and yeah. known, unknown to write. For example, my one of my first mentor editors at the Village Voice died of COVID, and I was one of the people that helped um, settle his estate and plan his, um, more, his Zoom memorial service and also the spreading of his ashes, and we helped set up a memorial in his name. And so I got to write about all of that in the book um, and write about the deaths of other people and uh, the deaths of friends. 
So I didn't know when I started it how much personal mourning there would be, and I didn't think it was actually going to have as much memoir as it ended up having. Um, so that's probably the the most different way that mm-hmm. I that it, it changed from the time I started it. But the principles that are in it, unfortunately, I wish they—I actually wish they would be not applicable, and the book would be irrelevant. Yeah, um, but yeah. the principles that I, you know, kind of um, tried to use to understand what linked HIV, which is a long-acting virus that that is a retrovirus, and then um, SARS-CoV-2, which is a very fast-acting respiratory virus. The ways I learned that social factors around them operated are, are really applying pretty clearly to monkeypox as well. Um, and so that way, I think that the spirit of what I wanted to start out with yeah. survived, even though there ended up being um, much more personal mourning and grief that I wrote about in the book that I couldn't have predicted when I when I first um, was putting it together. Yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to ask about that because there were so many points in the book that... Um, that felt so personal and that we, we see you in the book as well. Uh, and it sounds like that was not the plan from the beginning. Um, but through that, would you say that, um, you know, you're able to really get the message across of, uh, sharing your own sort of personal experience and the personal experience experiences of the people that you write about? I hope so. I, I knew that I would acknowledge myself in the book as the narrator between these people. Um, as a journalism professor and as, as a professor myself, I acknowledge sort of objectivity and neutrality in journalism. I think we all have a position, and it's good to be honest with our readers about the position we have. So I always wanted to recognize my own positioning of what I was doing. But I didn't realize how much my story is the connective tissue between this and the people who were... Um, closest to me that I would be writing about. Uh, I didn't I didn't know how much they would mm-hmm. make up the story. But I kind of had two goals with, with being intimate. Um, I mean, wh- other than just being honest and straightforward with readers, one is that viruses uh, transmit in the most intimate parts of our lives. And as I quote my Northwestern co- uh, colleague, Adia Benson, um, you know, we can't, we can't sort of declare war on viruses. And, and as it began, I was hearing lots of war metaphors. Yeah. We're going to war yeah. against this virus. We're going to destroy it. And viruses happen in these really intimate places. So you, you just would create too much collateral damage if you thought of creating war on, you know, the process of people hugging each other or eating together or right. breathing together, or having sex. Um, so in some ways, I wanted to to document the intimate ways that these viruses move. Um, And two, I felt that as a writer myself, if I could be vulnerable with my readers about the experiences I've had and the pain I've Mm -hmm. experienced and and the joy also, you know, I've had real joy and love and connection in this exploration and meeting people and the whole culture around AIDS activism is very life affirming and that they changed the process by which Mm -hmm. vaccines were made. And that's the reason why all of us, you know, got vaccinated within a year and not within 10 years. Um, and there's a whole, you know, kind of culture of mutual care. We had our, our had my book launch in New York City a couple nights ago, and there were all these people from ACT UP, and it was like a family reunion. So I'm trying to also acknowledge the joy and connection that happens. Um, and I'm doing, you know, again, like some of that to just be honest mm-hmm. with my readers, but I'm hoping and showing my own vulnerability about my relationship to viruses and how I, I've looked at them. I'm hoping that's going to give readers the opportunity to uh, be vulnerable with themselves and to maybe let down some of the defenses that yeah. we're often encouraged to put up by government or media to sort of, you know, move on from this experience yeah. that has taken a million lives. And I want to give people the chance to say, okay, 
Um, this book is slowing down and kind of looking at these individual stories through the eyes of one person, and I hope it gives readers the chance to um, think about the people they've lost, yeah. uh, both to this pandemic, but also to AIDS, also to you know, cholera and polio and you know other things that, that, that have affected yeah. people in the United States and around the world in different right. ways. And so, Stephen, I, I want to um, uh, touch on uh, something that, that you dive deep into, which is um, uh, criminalization of infectious diseases. Uh, when you talk about HIV criminalization, you write, quote, legislators still keep trying to criminalize infectious sickness, which is a way of criminalizing blackness. Explain that for us. Uh, certainly. Yeah, I've, I've talked on Reset um, about my research around this before, that HIV is a virus that about 40 million people around the world have died from. When it's untreated, it develops into AIDS, um, and also about 40 million people have died of that over the decades. And it's now a virus that's um, extremely and, and quite easily treatable when people have access to the medication and makes them live just as long as they normally would. It's mostly treated by one pill a day when people get diagnosed and get access to it. Um, but it's also prosecuted, and it's it's been treated uh, akin to murder. The laws were written in the 1980s when an AIDS diagnosis was a death sentence. And prosecuting sickness never works. It increases stigma. Uh, it encourages people. You, you can only be prosecuted for them if you know your status. And so one of the biggest barriers to getting people care for HIV is getting them tested and getting them um, the support they need. And if you are not tested, then you could never be prosecuted for it. Um, so about 70 countries around the world. And when I started working on this reporting, I think it was close to 40 states criminalized it. A number have repealed them, including Illinois. Illinois completely got rid of their laws um, last year, um, which is great, and, and decriminalized HIV. Um, and like I say, you now 40 million people live with this virus, so prosecuting any individual as if they're the one causing it does no good, and it actually makes it harder to get people the care that they need. And what we want to do when anyone is living with an infectious disease is make it safe and welcoming for them to get the care that they need that's going to protect them and that's also going to protect mm -hmm. their communities. And whenever there are incentives not to know, that makes it worse. So, yeah, for example, you know, if you are a shift worker and you start to see that you have um, symptoms that might be monkeypox and you know that you would lose your paycheck for a month, you have an impetus to try to ignore the symptoms as long as you can. Um, some of them are, are not able to be ignored, but uh, you know maybe a milder case it is. And so if we let people know, if you're sick, you're going to get the care you need. If you need to isolate, we're going to get the care you need. Mm -hmm. If you cannot work, you know everyone should ship into that because the person is not only protecting their own health, they're really quarantining for the health of everyone else. Right. So you know, if we tell people, if you're affected by any of these um, infections, you, you know, you're not on your own. We're going to take care of it with you. And, and the criminalization does the opposite. It says you're a bad person. Um, you're going to be punished for having gotten this, uh, uh, this uh, virus, and you will not be able to continue on with your life in a safe way. Mm -hmm. um, so dealing with things criminally, which happened with HIV, it's happened in a variety of ways with COVID in countries around the world. Um, and monkeypox, I don't think there's anything specifically about it, except the dynamic that the state can compel you to stay at home without any yeah. responsibility to help take care of you. And that itself is a kind of uh, violent punishment. Well, uh, you adapted an excerpt of the book for a piece in the, uh, in the Atlantic about the phrase, 
patient zero, which was originally patient O, but it was misinterpreted. Um, why is patient zero such a harmful concept? The idea, yeah, as you said, it was initially a mistake. And the idea of a patient zero is to blame um, to blame a disease on one person and sort of say, you are the reason that it came into this community and it wouldn't have but for you. And so the, the first person who is given this designation, he was a French-Canadian flight attendant named uh, Gaetan Dugas. Um, he was one of many people that you know were being talked to, and, and the idea that really came out of journalistic framing was that he had brought it to the United States. Uh, and it's an ableist concept in the first place to sort of assume a country has no virus and somebody else brings it in. Certainly with the United States, which has continued to use title or rule, I forget the, what's called, uh, Rule 42, which is trying to quickly deport migrants under the guise that they are contributing to a public health emergency. And until very recently, uh, you would still have to get tested for COVID to come into the country, even though the United States has arguably the most community transmission of any country in the world already circulating inside here. Mm-hmm. For many years, shamefully, George uh, W. Bush started to change it, but it didn't happen until Obama. Um, but for many years, people with HIV could not come into the United States. Uh, also, while HIV was moving a lot inside the United States. And so this idea of a patient zero ignores the reality that viruses are socially transmitted and socially experienced. They don't arrive in you like a stork, <laughs> like mm-hmm. like the idea of a, a stork uh, putting a baby uh, is also ridiculous. And viruses don't arrive that way either. They come through the ways that we interact with one another. So the idea that like it just magically appeared inside one person is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, I understand why you know, scientists, uh, there, certainly there are reasons why we want to understand the origins of transmission. Um, but to call someone a patient zero really is unfair and putting a lot of responsibility on them. Yeah. Uh, it's often wrong. The way that people look into it is, is, you know, quite often incorrect. And it's been used, I didn't get to write this in the article, but um, some ways that I've seen uh, around trans issues, it's been really uh, mm. uh, terribly used. Uh, the Emily Bazelon article in the New York Times Magazine referred to the the patient zero who first got a trans uh, that, that gender confirming surgery, and that creates uh, that makes it sound like being trans is a kind of social contagion, and also that's not a, a good yeah. frame of reference yeah. either. Well, in the uh, seconds we have left, um, you write that viruses have the possibility to be our greatest teachers. Uh, what opportunity do you see in COVID to reframe the way we talk about responsibility and community? They they disprove the American idea that we're all individuals with our own journey. We cannot negotiate life with animals, with other human beings or anything without acknowledging this biological reality. Even if we pretend it doesn't exist, they're going to be moving between us, you know, and our breaths. And there are more viruses on the planet than there are stars in the universe. So I think that they give us the opportunity, particularly in Chicago, which rebuilt its entire downtown and reversed the direction of the river to deal with cholera Mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century. They give us the opportunity to say, how can we live better with each other? How can we have better fresh air? How can we relate to one another? How can we give each other the chance to rest and recover when we're sick? Um, Because we're interdependent. None of us has an an independent destiny. We're all depending on each other. And the viruses give us that opportunity to practice um, mutual care for one another. Well said. Stephen Thrasher is an assistant professor at Northwestern University. His book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, is out now. Thank you so much. 
Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.